Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Udang Dhammang Sangang Namasami So I'll talk about the practice of emptiness as a means of liberation. There's different ways in which one Buddha used the word empty. Sometimes he meant empty meaning pretty useless. <laughs> yeah. mm. But there's another way in which he talked of emptiness meaning uh, something that's a is a unity of em- emptiness that gives rise to unity to the unity of emptiness the fullness of emptiness this is much more contemplative experience of emptiness which is to refer to in in many contemplative traditions. I think the Buddha gives a very good um, process path for practicing that. It's a particular discourse called the Lesser Discourse on Emptiness, which he he traces to this in a a specific way. Mm. And it's really about um, working with perceptions perceptions and the particular inclinations that occur with perception. That might already have gone a bit too far. But if we get back to the Buddha's Buddha's most obvious focus on suffering and the release from suffering, then it's always, suffering always occurs around a sense of um, differentiation, separation. Um, there's this is better than that. Therefore I want this, I don't want that. Um, you know, this kind of experience. So as we favoring and opposing separate so this involves when we favor something, then we dread the separation from it. When we oppose something, we dread being conjoined to it. So favoring and opposing, favoring and opposing, and these are the kind of currents that occur within us and so if something touches it we favor it we oppose it you know something happens that that's going on all the time but what really <clears throat> um so when we first experience something first we don't know what it is you know like when you're really small you don't know what things are you stick your finger in the fire whoops so you learn because you basically know pleasure pain you know as experiences, and then you begin to recognize, you put up perception, fire, hurts, oppose contact with that, so you don't stick your fingers in it, but you favor being quite close to it. So you, but you build up these what are called perceptions. That means you've got a library of memories, you might say short little memory icons that tell you the kind of things that are good, kind of things that aren't good, pleasant, give you pleasure, give you pain. Unfortunately, it's not always accurate, is it? You know? So, 
We might very well see something that looks like a fire, but actually isn't a fire. Or you might see something that looks like a fried egg, but actually made of plastic. So it looks attractive, interesting, you stick your teeth in it, doesn't taste like an egg, horrible. So your perceptions aren't always accurate, but that's what triggers you see some something in a in a billboard, you know, in a poster. Come lovely hamburger or something dripping and shiny and lustrous and you think, wow, fantastic. And go and buy the thing. It's a load of rubbish. You know? So perceptions trigger off these impulses, volitional impulses, which are called sankara, volitional impulses. And they get particular you build up particular you know, the basic impulses are generally towards um, favouring or opposing. And you build up all kinds of different degrees of impulse, kind of from the rabid to the sneaky, to <laughs> you know, and and we get a whole kind of very highly classified and categorized ways in which we favor and oppose and deal with things that we favor and oppose, acquire things we favor and nudge away or protect ourselves from things we oppose. And because of the way, the way our lives are, often we're actually really basing that quality of favouring and opposition upon impressions, perceptions. That is, somebody looks that way, I don't, they look like they're angry or they're mistrustful. You know, somebody you can't trust, so you, oppose, you feel withdrawn. But you don't actually know right now, but it reminds you of something, so you do that. A tone of voice reminds you of something, so you do that particular body language reminds you of something. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not true. But the way we operate is we, we go for the perception rather than have to investigate it every time because of course, you know, that's, that's time consuming and it, you might um, get burnt again. So we very much build up this whole library, perceptions and volitions and so on. You know? And this causes an immense amount of differentiation in our lives. So with that, even though there is maybe uh, a reasonable degree of security and comfort, there's always this sense of having to manage this whole library of, of differentiation. Like, what's he going to do? Is she all right? Is this right? Is that right? Is that good? Is it going to make me happy? Will it work? Will it not work? Oh, pleasant? Am I going to be... And then I, and I, we get psychological stuff. And am I going to be liked if I do this or not liked? You know, so huge amounts of, of things going. You've got to kind of handle it all. So that gives you a sense of, of stress and overload. You know? If you've just been, I don't know how many of you are out sh- shopping for Christmas. When you do Christmas shopping, what should have been a spirit of goodwill ends up being torment because you wonder. What should you get, Auntie Betty? Will she like this? Will she not like this? Will you blow it if you don't send this one to Cousin Nancy? Uncle Tom forgot you last year. Should you send him a Christmas card? He might get embarrassed because he didn't send you one. So it can be a very harrowing experience. Just trying to be generous and benevolent because you don't know quite whether how that's going to be received. You think, God, it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because differentiation is stressful. You know, having to figure it and calculate. You know, 
Emptiness is about gradually, progressively lessening the qualities of differentiation. Emptying out perceptions. Mm. So, this is a particular process the Buddha encouraged. Because right in the centre of this perception and impulse thing is the sense of self. Things that, you know, somehow support me or I agree with, things that make me feel happy, things that I belong to, things I don't want to be part of. You know, so that, that remains the kind of centering, centre of all this activity of differentiation, which is going to get me the safest, easiest, most fruitful experience out of all this stuff. That's the nub of it. So something is scanning. And in many teachings, the Buddha deliberately referred to this sense of, of self as being itself extremely stress-producing and actually unreliable because nothing finally can be claimed as belonging to one, one's own. Um, and also, perhaps more subtly, one can't say one is something Neither can one actually say, I am other than this. So it covers all the bases. You know? So that sense of, I am outside of this, or I have this, or I am this, all of that, you know, is where we get some sense of favouring, opposing, differentiations, biases, and so forth occurring, and basically stress. So, a lot of the times the Buddha actually cause people to, to reflect upon these things. But as you recognize when you something that you've, you've, you've felt you've had or belonged to suddenly is taken away from you, you don't necessarily get a sense of release. Often you get a sense of grief, loss, bereavement of some kind. You know, you know when I kind of lost my... I had a little, ba- little puppy, a little dog, and then which I loved very much. And then one day, for some reason, all of my parents decided to give it away while I was at school. <laughs> and I came back, my puppy was gone. So extremely upset. I didn't feel a relief of emptiness. I felt bereft. <laughs> and of course, we all have this experience. Sometimes, it's severe form. Sometimes less severe forms so so you know just saying well it never it's not mine doesn't actually we tend to then attach or or feel ourselves identified with the sense of loss you know so that sense of why then we feel very much not taken to a process of release but but more or less traumatized into a sense of loss which we feel i am this set of feelings this set of emotions so you don't get past the sense of self through just ripping things away from you. Because you know? then you end up either with a ripped away feeling that you feel you belong to, or if you've been able to do it in a kind of fairly kind of clinical way, then you get the feeling of, well, I am someone who can let go of this. So you cling to that, <laughs> that impression you know, so, so, although this teaching is true, it's not necessarily an efficacious means. 
And the process of emptiness is really a way of gently massaging, not the sense of self, but the very act of perception. So as you begin to recognize whatever we differentiate, there's always an undifferentiated, which is greater than that, and we can ease into the undifferentiated. So you consider, you know, the number of people that you know is less than the number of people you don't know. Right? <laughs> the things that you own is much less than the things you don't own, isn't it? Right? So that which you know, that which you've determined, that which you've made an opinion about is much less than that which you don't know. So the field of the unknown, the not owned, the not belonged to, the not familiar, is much greater than the field of the known, the familiar, the owned, the differentiated. So if we can actually open into that, then we have a a wider place to live, and also a place that's much freer. Because the undifferentiated is void, of opposing and favouring. It's just what it is. It's not caught up in that. So right now, I can't favour or or oppose Betty Simpson because I don't know her. (laughs) If I knew her, I could have an opinion about her. If I don't know her, nothing happens, you know. But I've just invented her now. I've got to... So she's half there already, starting to have an opinion about her. See a little lady with curly hair and uh, flower, flower print dress on. So you, know. <laughs> so you can start having an opinion about it, favouring or opposing it. But just consider, you know, the things you haven't named or known or got in, into your perceptual library is actually much bigger than your st- stuff you have. Now, could the mind actually open to sense that vastness and ease into that. This is the, what we call the descent into emptiness. And the, the point of it is, or one point of it is, that, the, that the, the wider field encloses the smaller. That is, you can experience the differentiated, the known sits within the unknown. The unknown has no problems with the known. It's fine, you know, you can be here. The known has problems with the unknown. <laughs> says, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You know, what I don't know. It could be this, it could be that. But the unknown has no problems with the known. That is where the mind stops thinking and planning, you know, that quality of mind actually you can experience thinking, planning, stopping of thinking and planning. You know, so you, you see how you can actually give you themes of, of that, that are about widening one's mental lens, you might say. Not to reject the known, the formed, the familiar, but to see it within the larger field. So for example, if we think of a particular person, you probably think of them as they are right now. 
as they manifest in your mind right now, as they look with their 20, 30, 40, male or female, whatever they are, you know, anything like that. And just consider them there when they're older, when they're younger. Consider them as being very young, consider them as being old, consider them as being sick, happy, sad, angry, joyful, generous, mean, all the things that human beings can be. You see, so instead of just having one perception, you actually all those other perceptions are true in their own way. You open it wide and say, actually, which is the which is the the real one? Well, they're all potentially there. Yeah. So the mind, in a way, steps back from particular perceptions. Say, what's the general? You know, when you look at the unity of it all, the unity of all is just a person, a human being. In that quality of unity, you let go of the various differentiations of she's happy, she's sad, she's pleasant, she's unpleasant, she's grumpy, she's joyful, she just is. And in that sense of undifferentiation, the mind feels this is true, it's present, it's true, and I can be with that. And actually it's true, isn't it? But if you held on to this person being generous and joyful as something they actually are, a particular facet, then you get upset when they're not, or if you're let down. You, see, you widen that, so you take a particular perception and you start to you know, look at the, open, widen it, you massage it. Till you come to the place where you just come to, well, it's like this. The Buddha talked of this process. He said, just imagine, you know, um, you're in a forest and you consider the ravines, the trees, the hills, the grass, the creatures in the forest, all these particular little bits and pieces. And you, if you focus on any one of those, then there's some sense of disturbance goes on because you get absorbed into that and you want to you favor that and you want to see only that and yet if you widen it right up you can say this is the perception of forest and what is absent from this is the perceptions of towns and cities so it's present to this extent and is empty of towns and cities and as you develop that sense of forest, you dwell in that sense of forest, the meaning of it, the feeling of it, the quality of it, and, it's, and you smooth out or you even out all those little bits and pieces in it, you come to an undifferentiated experience of forest. You dwell in the feeling of that and your mind feels settled in that. So that whatever, so you both put aside one thing and, and amplify another thing. Now you look at that, say, in terms of that person, you know, you can think of just this person rather than, you know, everybody else, just one person, so it's empty of other people. And this one person, you can consider all the different aspects of that person and you come to a unity, which is just, there she is. What can you say? So it's a unity and the mind settles. It stops fiddling and fussing with it. It stops favoring and opposing it. Because within that you've accepted 
the favourable and the unfavourable as all being potentially present. Somebody, when I was in South Africa, somebody's talking to me about the Japanese pottery. And they're saying how they have a particular kind of pottery. You may know this called raku. Raku pottery is pretty uh, spontaneous. It's often just a little tea bowl. And it's um, fairly low-fired. So it, it, and it's glazed. And it can go horribly wrong. You know? And it's particularly done very quite quickly in a, in a very, you know impromptu manner so the saying is the feeling is if you actually have something that you make put too much attention to making purely beautiful behind the quality of the beauty the sense of really trying to make it perfect and polished and exactly right behind it lingers the shadow of ugliness that is something you want to exclude you want to exclude the blemishes you want to exclude the slightly cracked. You want to exclude the stained. You know? So behind the quality of beauty there lurks the shadow of ugliness. And, and the, the sense of it is in this aesthetic that then when you look at the beautiful thing you feel the kind of contriveness of it which is trying to protect itself from being ugly. You know? Sometimes you see people look like that, don't you? You know, imagine if fashion models or, you know, trying to actually hold everything just exactly so. They can't have a wrinkle or a sag anywhere. <laughs> you know, so that behind the beauty there lurks the shadow of ugliness. And that's somehow present in the beauty. There's a certain tenseness about it. And they said, with Raku, you just put something, mould it, slap some glaze on it, put it in the oven and fire it. And it comes out slightly, generally, generally slightly wonky. You know, there's little kind of unevennesses in it. The glaze is often cracked. The firing is uneven. You know, it's often got kind of flared patches or it's cracked or uneven. But the ugly and the beautiful are in it together. And I say, this is, this is another kind of art. Yeah. It holds up. You know, so this thing, which looks like kid could have made it <laughs> somehow. You know. This one, ten thousand dollars for this for these sake. <laughs> so it's both extremely uh, poor, extremely expensive. It's kind of misshapen and it's perfect. So this is tr- this is true art. So it's it's the unity bringing together the unity of things. So the differentiations of the mind are, it really works on the person to let go of the differentiations. Of course, it doesn't work for everybody. Some people then differentiate particular kinds of, you know, you can't just get out of it like that because of course you differentiate particular kinds of raku. It's better or worse. But the principle is interesting, isn't it? That behind what we favour lurks the shadow of dread of loss. Um, so we try to actually really see the fullness of a thing as it is in all its aspects and we put aside the inferred or the possibles. Mm-hmm. This is really a very good theme for, 
meditation, as you meditate. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we find the body coming into the body. There's all the different sensations that occur in the body. So you put aside um, images of the body, concerns about other people's bodies, concerns about what people think your body looks like, concerns about what it should be. You come into direct experience of it as it is, and those differentiations of agreeable, disagreeable, favoring and opposing, you recognize this is body. You know, it, it has pleasant, unpleasant, ugly, beautiful, sick, healthy, aging, young, dead, alive, all in it. So somehow the mind, when you come to that, the mind just stops. <laughs> yeah. When you come into a hall of people, there's people you know, people you don't know, people you feel interested in, people you feel uncertain about, you come to the perception of all within this hall, you know, and then we come to the undifferentiated perception, human beings. You know, when you come to that, and you let, let go of the kind of other stuff, there can rise a feeling of, we're just like me. You know? So the sense of differentiation begins to wane. And interestingly enough, this is a source of this sense of kindness, compassion, equanimity and appreciation comes from that, from emptiness. Rather than because you deserve it, there's just a natural resonance of empathy that occurs once we start to let go of the things that separate us. And the favoring and the opposing and the nervousness and the uncertainties and self-consciousness. So it's much more than just an academic exercise. It's actually recognizing the, the, the more the mind releases its differentiations, the more it's capable of expressing its basic health, its basic sanity, its basic benevolence, its basic radiance. Hmm? Which is what a mind that's cluttered with differentiation doesn't recognize. We feel that we can only feel good if we get the happy bit. We can only feel good if we get the agreeable bit. We can only feel okay if we're with the person we like. Yeah? And the process of emptiness is to say, no, you can feel okay with all of it if you're able to find a way to let go of those differentiations. Not through, not through rejecting them, but coming to a basic unity that underlies them. Such as the unity of, this is a human being. There's grumpy humans, there's reactive humans, there's sad humans, there's loving humans. There's humans, just like me. Who are grumpy, sad, reactive, loving, you know, the whole shibik thing. They're all in there, aren't they? Don't always act upon them, but the potentials are there. This is a really good way to, to certainly to live with people and to live in community. There's so many different forms of karma, of karmic patterns and processes occurring that you can never really, you can't add it all up to find a unity. 
you can't find a unity out of assembling it all but you can find a unity that, that underlies it all we all so humans we all want to stop suffering we all need um, warmth care we all are capable of realisation you come to that there's a sense of mutual respect empathy and one feels this is true this is a truth that leads to release from favouring and opposing and from the all the stuff that can go on around that then the Buddha particularly traced this in the development of meditation say taking up he taught him taking up the earth element. <clears throat> now the earth element means everything that feels solid. It could be external, could be internal. Doesn't matter. It could be the stone floor, could be the posts, it could be the sense of your own body. Just take up the earth element. Pick up that particular thing, put aside other things, and you get into a sense of an undifferentiated perception of earth. Sense of the solid. When we meditate, sometimes it's just like that. You come into the undifferentiated sense of, I'm present. You know? There's all the things that are jumping around and heaving around and throwing themselves out the windows in my mind. You know, there's there's the moving stuff, there's the happening stuff, there's tomorrow, yesterday, there's the shoulds and shouldn'ts. I am present. You know? So for that, we enter into something that is undifferentiated. It doesn't reject the other stuff. It just says, but we find a unity that can be larger than you know, both both include and transcend differentiations. Includes and transcends. Doesn't chop it off. And we might say, you know, one of the fundamental practices of, of cultivating awareness is when we get bigger than our happiness and sadness, not by cutting them off, but by being with them, being larger than, no longer going to those reactive, um, blaming, you know, fighting with um, stuff, you know. Fantasize, you just you stop that particular activity by embracing the wholeness of it. Taking this into um, something like mindfulness of breathing, you can feel the breathing in your body. Your body unifies around that. The breathing is something that affects, sweeps through, saturates the whole body. You can feel the rhythms of it, the warmth of it, the energies of it. So we let go of things like um, hair, bones, eyes, teeth, identities. We just go into being the breathing. Mm-hmm. Becomes so, so totally pre- present with that. And if you practice that, there comes a point where you can see even the differentiation between in and out breathing becomes uh, kind of agitated. So you're just going to sheer the sheer energy of breathing. You know, it's like a continual undertone of energy 
in breathing that you can attune to. To the point where the physical breath becomes imperceptible and you're just with a kind of radiant essence of breathing. So you, in a way you open up to the wholeness and you begin to relax the differentiations. You open up to the wholeness of something, all the possibilities of it. And then as you've opened up to that, you let go of the favoring and opposing within that, the mind settles and the field begins to clear. So there's an emptying out, which is not through aversion or judgment or dumping, but an emptying out, if you like, just through differentiation starting to release. And the Buddha likened it to imagining you have um, a, a hide that is the skin of a cow or a bull, and when you, it's all wrinkled up. And he said, what you do, you peg it out, and you stretch it, stretch it and stretch it. So eventually what happens, all those wrinkles and folds disappear. You've unfolded it. Where did they go? You, know, you haven't cut them out. You didn't judge them. You didn't stamp all over it. I get upset, but you just widened and opened and smoothed, and those differentiations of the folds and the creases unfolded into an undifferentiated unity of the bull's hide. So there is emptying out of the differentiations entering into a unity. Yeah. So the things one can snag on get less and less. And he says, yeah, but you know, you do this still, there's that sense of being in a body, body breathing, and there's the various um, favoring or posing of being within that. So when we do that, we may very well feel, you know, um, sensations or moving around or whatever disturbs it. So it says then you want to open up even wider. Open it up into just the quality of being aware. So it says you move from this into the sense of spaciousness. Not by rejecting it, but by seeing as your mind is a unity, there's a wider field you can go to, which we could say in the case of mindfulness of breathing, we come into the field of awareness. Mindfulness of breathing fits within awareness. So as you've enriched the process of awareness through that focusing, then you open up into being aware. And then that isn't disturbed by, you know, moving around, seeing things, touching things, you know, things that are not about the body. So you gradually open up into wider and wider fields of, of perception that mean you get less and less disturbed. And so actually, kind of one of the key features of, of um, Buddhist practice is that the way out of what seemingly, the way out of what seems to be the, the dilemma of being caught within a mortal body, within the sense realm, within pleasure and pain experience, 
isn't by going somewhere else, but actually by going deeply within it. The phrase is that within this very body, with its consciousness, perceptions and feelings, is the beginning of the world, the end of the world, and the path to the end of the world, the whole cosmos, you might say. The whole sense of uh, blissful, hellish, and beyond. Just within this. So, you're actually recognizing by being within the body, for example, you can move from the body to awareness of the body, to awareness of awareness. <laughs> you know? So the field gets wider and wider. It doesn't actually reject anything, you just continue widening it and open it as you do so. Subtler and subtler aspects manifest. Mm-hmm become apparent to you. This means you can, you can then go back into being in a body or a feeling or a sensation or you can move out of it, you've got that flexibility. And you can be aware of a sensation or you can be aware of a desire about a sensation or you can be aware of the awareness of a sensation. So you know, you actually haven't lost anything. You can go into a wider undifferentiated state or stasis that encompasses and transcends everything within it. So instead of, you know, chopping something off, we actually embrace and transcend. If you just get that little bit, embrace, and transcend. Transcend meaning not get me somewhere else. It means open into the way, into the fullness of this experience. Let go of the agitations and the fears and the pushes. Open into it as it is. You transcend. So it's a very wholesome way Liberation doesn't reject things. Because in rejecting and favouring, there always gets manufactured the sense of I am, who then takes a stand upon something. And the stand is always shaky. In the Buddha's uh, presentation, he says you can take all this process up to the experience of signlessness, which means actually um, the experience of change. So when you see everything is a continual process of change and you focus on the uncertain, the changeable, the ephemeral nature of experience, you just make that your sign, which you can do in meditation, just focusing on the change, the sight, the flex, the flux, the ephemeral, till your mind becomes very light. So you can focus on that. That becomes your sign that encompasses everything. Everything is in this process. You open into that. You empty out the sense of fixity, um, um, certainty, you know, let things be ephemeral. You open into that your mind settles into that, you experience a sense of release from 
you know, the favoring and opposing that goes around um, stability of any kind. Where we resist things or we want to hold things. And it says the, for the final, most interesting point of the whole process is when the person who's cultivated this recognizes all this that I've cultivated, I've cultivated it. Wherever I've cultivated, that itself is a differentiation. I've decided to do it. You know, I've made my mind do this. It's been, uh, Realizing that begins to just let things be the way they are. But in that process, it's begun as seen through all the habits that occur around favoring and opposing. So what remains, which is is the sense bases, you know, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, without this habitual favoring and opposing. Mm. What's been occurred is this kind of uprooting of those tendencies because things have been seen as purely notional, ephemeral. You know, you can move in and out of it. So, mm. you begun to realize an undifferentiated awareness through that. And then the world of sense, touch, tight, sight, so forth, is just as it is. So this is the true fulfillment of emptiness. That whatever one sees, one knows, is just the seen. Whatever is heard, is known, is just the heard. Sight, sound, touch, thought, inference is just this. And instead of that kind of what happens when we normally see or hear things as a whole kind of, you know, resonance of, well, I don't fancy this, what, that, what does that mean, what's going on here, you know, it's just, it's just this. So, the senses, the world differentiation exists within the world of non-differentiation. And there isn't the kind of rushing into the differentiated world to seek something or to oppose something. So the mind is at peace. Because this is um, rather a profound topic for a Saturday night or any night. Hmm. So it's just to get the sense of massaging perception. If something, you take something you like. See the unlikable in it. See something you don't like. See the likable in it. See something you neither like nor don't like. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Just start to massage those things. When you're in a world of different forms, see the unity. You know, just like we see in this room, there's bodies, livers. Can't see livers, I can imagine livers, lungs, eyeballs, toenails. So within that, there's these here, there's those there, mind kind of stops. It's both true, 
There's nothing that's made about it. You see, or you can take it even a step further, there's just forms. In this room there's just forms. So whatever one feels about bodies or human beings, okay, we just move to the perception of forms, that is, something that's seeable, detectable. Hmm? Yeah, maybe there's that. And you can see any sense of, you know, and it's fully present, it's that. So rather than should be this or that, it's just this is just form. So the kind of uh, agitations that would occur around pink or green or male or female or old or young or known or unknown, these can rest in the larger sense of it just forms which doesn't deny anything, doesn't deny there are people here, we're just saying rest in something bigger than that. So the mind, we do that, the mind by, by, by loosening up comes into a place where it actually settles and you can just dwell in that particular perception. And through dwelling in that perception you begin to curtail the activities of these impulses and normally go out towards the pink or the green or the male or the female or the old or the young or the friend or the non-friend. You know, those particular things that start jangling and moving around. And as the mind rests, we get a sense of stability and ease and the natural quality of, of goodwill and contentment arises. Practice like that. where we consider psychological behavior, the slow and the quick, the sharp and the dull, the impulsive and the faltering. People are subject to karma. There's karma, there's activities, there's patterning, there's conditioning that occurs. So, you know, you're irritated by this person's attitude, you don't like her behavior, you think he's really good at this and she's pretty slow at that or she's so good at that and he's no good at that. It's just karma. It's just programs, you know. Mine, yours. We look at the field of prog- of karmic, of karma, of acquired conditioning. So you open up into that. Acquired conditioning. You see it like that. And you realise it, it finally... What, do you, what can you experience with that? My mind says, well, like equanimity of, yeah, you know. You understand. Yeah. There isn't somebody doing these things, it's just, there's just behaviors that have been conditioned in. And when you look at the negative behaviors in people, you recognize. You know, how many people get conditioned in through delusion, through fears, through prejudices? So you, you, you don't make judgments. It's just, there's karma. There's karma here. There's a lot of karma here. 
And then when these situations, you also sense there's a lot of interest in getting beyond it. So you're able to acknowledge the inherited karma, the patterns, behaviors, the good, the bad, the favored, the unfavored, and so forth. And also, there's something beyond that. So by really knowing the fullness of what is present in a group or even in yourself, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> the lovely and the sad. Yeah. This is karma. This is inheritance. These is energies. These are forms. Like the raku pot. In the wholeness of it, the mind is made, in appreciating the wholeness of it, the mind is made beautiful. The awareness is made beautiful because the awareness is free from the blemish of judgment and blame, free from the blemish of wanting to be this way, wanting it to be that way. The mind is made free, the awareness is made free through massaging these perceptions. This is the descent, called a descent. The Buddha used the word descent, not climbing up into emptiness. It's like a real deconstruction, like a dropping down into a basic field of unity that lies, you might say, beneath all this accumulated constructions and fabrications that we've been building up, or karma has been building up over millennia, who knows. And when this we begin to recognize, this is the undifferentiated unity that was there 10,000 years ago. <laughs> it's timeless. No. It's placeless, it's ownerless. There's room for everything in that. It's an emptiness that is the fullness of the mind. Anyone? <laughs>